Chatting with Asians. On this episode, I chat with Eddie Zhang. He's the founder of the New Breath Foundation, the first formerly incarcerated juvenile lifer to serve as president of a philanthropic foundation. With his personal experience going through the school-to-prison-to-deportation pipeline, he has dedicated himself to fighting for communities impacted by the criminal justice system. We talk about the system's effect on the AAPI community and why the spread of COVID in prisons is inhumane. So here's my chat with Eddie. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show, Eddie. Happy new breath. Happy new breath. So we definitely have a lot of topics to go through today, um, specifically kind of your work around mass incarceration and at-risk youth. And one of the questions I had to start off with is that there's a really strong stigma, especially within the AAPI community, against having a criminal background. But the reality is that nonviolent offenses now lead to a prison term since the 1990s saw the passing of more severe crime and punishment legislation and the increased influence of private prison corporations. So why is the stigma still so strong, especially within the AAPI community? And what can we do to change it? For the AAPI community, uh, it's a little different just because the population is that who are impacted by mass incarceration is very small in comparison of the black and brown and the white community. And so in that sense, people are, normally don't associate uh, mass incarceration uh, with the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Um, and the reason why the stigma is so strong, uh, especially for the uh, AAPI community, is that it, asso- uh, it associates with uh, bad people or people that who are not up to par with what a regular citizen is supposed to be. And also, one of the challenges has to deal with the culture of shame right, in the AAPI community. People don't normally want to talk about anything challenging, uh, such as mental health issues or even uh, some of the LGBTQ uh, issues or undocumented uh, residents. And anything that associated with uh, negativity that make them uh, more less than uh, of a good citizen or less than um, a good American citizen, then they don't want they want to disassociate themselves with that, right? So that kind of equate to the fear of losing face. Um, nobody wants to lose face, whether it's within their own family, uh, their relatives, or the community. Uh, in the Asian American community as well as the the mainstream society, so that's why that stigma is so strong, right? And the people don't want to associate with that. And then the other piece about the mass incarceration, unfortunately, is that it it does not discriminate. Also, right? It actually impacts uh, the many of the um, Asian American Pacific Islander communities in a improportional way. And I say that because um, even though we are a very small percentage of the people that who are in the criminal justice system, um, but just within that small percentage, we're actually um, overrepresented, especially when it comes to dealing with the Southeast Asian uh, and the Pacific Islander communities. And so that's why um, we, we, don't, we don't normally hear uh, some of the wrenching, heart-wrenching stories uh, that is impacting the AAPI community when it comes to mass incarceration because it also leads to um, deportation. 
post incarceration. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking because while I was doing research for this podcast episode,、um, I read a few statistics focusing around the incarceration of specifically AAPI youth that were, at least for me, pretty shocking. And I'll share some of them with you right now.、Um, The first one is that arrests of AAPI youth in the U.S. increased 726 percent from 1977 to 1997, which is insane. I've never read a statistics with such a high percentage over 700 percent. The other statistic that I found was that during this time between 1977 and 1997, Asian juveniles in California were more than twice as likely to be tried as adults. As compared to white juveniles who committed similar crimes, and the last statistics that I'll share is that in cities such as Oakland, AAPI youth had very high arrest rates. Samoans, for example, with 140 per thousand, Cambodians with 63 per thousand, and Laotians with 52 per thousand. So there's definitely this kind of trend,、um, especially with Pacific Islander and Southeast Asian youths. Being more vulnerable to the school to prison pipeline. So, what are some solutions that we can do to help at-risk youth, especially those from communities of color? Yeah. So, as as you、uh, kind of like sharing that statistic,、uh, all I can remember is the the quote of、um, tyranny in small numbers, right? So, even though we have a small population of、uh, API that who are impacted by mass incarceration and the deportation system.、Um, But yet,、uh, we we are not being considered as an impacted population. So therefore, we have very few culturally competent resources to support、uh, for the people that who are impacted by mass incarceration and deportation system. I think, you know, for the API community, I always challenge people to look at the beyond those just the school to prison pipeline, but really look at the forced migration to the school prison. Uh, to prison and deportation pipeline, meaning that is that we have to look at the United States foreign policy, how is it、uh, contribute to the impact of mass incarceration、uh, and and the deportation system? Because、uh, when when the trauma of war, right, that took place in those、um, countries that you have mentioned, when they、uh, came to the United States、right, as refugees. They did not、uh, just come straight in to a place where they have culturally competent resources to help them heal the trauma of war, or giving them culturally competent resources to support the three immediate challenges、um, as immigrants or as refugees who come to this country, which is the language barrier, the cultural differences, and the generation gap. Right, and so we can see some of those dynamics that create this、uh, very、um, Violent and、uh, kind of like a traumatic、uh, environment for new、uh, refugees to come into a new country, right? And so, hence, we see a, a lot of、uh, lack of investment in some of these young people, as well as their parents and grandparents that who、uh, came up to the United States and settled with them, and then. Uh, because the educational system did not provide those type of culturally competent resources to support them, then many of the、uh, folks are having to kind of, you know, naturally、uh, for survival purposes and also 
because the environment they gravitate toward uh, some juvenile delinquency and then also led to uh, to committing crimes, then led them to prison. And while they're in prison, uh, unfortunately, because many of the people that who are not citizens of the United States, they are when they finish their prison sentence, they are immediately detained by the Department of Homeland Security uh, under the what we call the ICE, right, which is the Immigration Customs Enforcement, uh, for mandatory detention and deportation. I think some of the solutions definitely having to do with how do we make sure right, for any of the communities, especially many of the refugee communities and uh, people that who are living in uh, some of those uh, disenfranchised uh, environments in, the, in those type of communities, how do we make sure that they, they receive the culturally competent services uh, they deserve, right? To be able to adjust to a new culture, adjusting uh, to the different barriers that came along as new immigrants and as refugees. And so I think that's one piece. And then the, the other piece having to do with how do we empower young people, right? Uh, with the idea that they have a purpose, right? That they are able to um, provide them with the resources and the skill sets and the educations to be able to, uh, so they can feel that they they have a purpose and then they they are being valued as individuals. And so, if we are able to create some of those uh, infrastructure in place to support uh, those the, the vulnerable populations, whether they are young people or, or uh, elders, and then that would be one way to be able to address some of the disconnections and the inequitable uh, culturally competent resources that we have for that population. Uh, so I think, you know, this is something that we are actively trying to be able to advocate for and, and fighting for right, as a community. I think these are really great points that you brought up. And one of the other questions I had, I think you actually kind of partially answered, but um, I also have some follow-up questions. So I think regarding especially kind of wartime refugees or especially Southeast Asians or Pacific Islanders, not talking just specifically about the youths, but just generally the population, mm -hmm. there were two other facts that I had found that were also just really startling for me and very eye-opening. One of it was that since 1998, at least 15,000 Southeast Asian Americans from Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam have received final orders of deportation, despite many arriving to the U.S. with refugee status and, and obtaining a green card. And the other fact that I had found was that Southeast Asian American communities are three to four times more likely to be deported for old convictions compared to other immigrant communities. And I know we kind of lightly touched about why the Southeast Asian communities are more vulnerable especially to immigration detention and deportation, it kind of sounds like there's a relationship to, to U.S. foreign policy and immigration policy. You know, could one of the possible solutions be just being politically active, like, right, like voting for the presidential election or any, like local, regional, um, national elections or, you know, taking the census? Are those other possible solutions in your opinion? So we, we look at the people that who are traditionally that who came to the United States as uh, immigrants to uh, for a variety of reasons, right? Whether people here for a better career or be better educational opportunity, or 
with the people that who came here as a result of again the U.S. foreign policy and pushed them out of their own country, right? Because they uh, they were allies to the United States war, you know, in in foreign countries or in their homeland. Um, that you know, whatever the push and pull factor that brought them to the United States for the Southeast Asian Americans um, or the refugee population is that when they came over is post. You know, in uh, 1975, right, many of them came over because of the, the war, you know, against communism, right, this proxy war that, that took place, you know, in, in, uh, in Asia, right, in Southeast Asia. And those, uh, those battlegrounds, it was actually uh, being um, decimated, right, for their natural resources, for people's culture, uh, for their sense of, of belonging, right, with their, uh, and their connection to their ancestral land. You know, so those type of uh, trauma of war is something that, you know, I cannot fathom because I have never experienced it, right? You know, a couple of organizations that I specifically work with, right, you know, right now as, uh, you know, a New Breath Foundation. Well, last November, I was able to go um, to Cambodia and uh, Phnom Penh to be able to do a listening tour of the deportees uh, in, in Cambodia. So I went with um, the Asian Prisoner Support Committee, Asian Law Caucus, Advancing Justice San Francisco, and um, with uh, Southeast Asian Freedom Network, right, to be able to go to Cambodia and just kind of listen to some of the impacts of deportation have on many of the people that who are from the United States. And one of the... Um, the, the one of the questions that they always, uh, that you know, as a way to talk with some of the individual when they talk to us is like, "Oh, have you ever been to uh, a Cambodian before?" You know, and our, my response is like, "Oh, it's my first time," and the, and their res- many of their responses are always, "It's my first time also," right? Oh no, yeah, because they were never they they were born they weren't born in uh, Cambodia, right? And right. they never they never knew Cambodia, right? And so then they're, they're Americanized. So many of them, they grew up in the United States since the age of 12 or, you know. Um, so they, they have no idea. They don't, they don't speak the language that the natives uh, uh, spoke. And then, you know, the cultural differences, you know, this is all new to them, right? So that, that layer of trauma, again, um, it continued, right, do that from the war. Uh, to settling in in the, in the U.S., you know, in the refugee camps, and then uh, settling in the low income and, and the a community of color, and then ended up in the school system, in the prison, and then now deportation, uh, and then back into a country they've never been to. So this uh, cycle of trauma and this uh, is it, just uh, very created a lot of harm uh, for many of the individuals who have been deported. And for the family member that who are still in the United States, and some of them, their children who are U.S. citizens that who will remain in the United States, why? Right? Because of the separation. So obviously, uh, there's a lot of uh, different challenges. But the solution has to be again: is so how do we make sure that we bring awareness to some of those challenges in our community, and not really trying to play into this, uh, uh, where people would normally saying that, well, if we are immigrants came here with nothing and we were able to build a, a, a family and a community and not ending up in prison and not ending up being deportation, why can't you do the same, right? So we cannot blanketly, you know, looking at, uh, see that as a, a way, you know, 
that applies to everyone because everybody uh, experience is a little different. So it depends on your social economic, uh, social economic, economic backgrounds. You know, it plays a, a huge difference. So having the awareness, raising awareness about some of the challenges is important to be able to uh, actively engage, right, civilly engage to be able to become citizens, to vote, uh, to be able to be educated on some of the policies. And, you know, like what we have, what's happening today with the census, right, to be able to participate in the census of 2020 is very crucial. And then I think it's just about building community, right, to be able to activate our own community and other uh, community to be able to uh, advocate for change, right, to really speak up uh, for ourselves and for those people that who may not be able to, um, you know, to speak for them, for, for to having a voice, right? How do we make sure that we are there for them? Um, and then also holding the government accountable, right, on some of the practices of uh, separating uh, families and then be able to, uh, and, and also uh, creating more traumas in the marginalized, uh, vulnerable population, you know, in the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Talking about the layering of different traumas and intergenerational trauma, I mean, it's really hard to not talk about COVID-19 now and how that's affected just everybody around the world. And I think for me, it's just, it's really exacerbated a lot of the issues, especially related to mass incarceration and the industrial prison complex. In your opinion, what are some of the most pressing COVID-19 related issues that prisoners face? So with the current uh, impact of COVID-19, it definitely hits the prison industrial complex and some of the privatized uh, immigration detention centers are very uh, hard right, in, in that space. And the reason why that is, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's a such confined space that people are being warehoused in, you know, in the prison industrial complex. And they, they have nowhere to go, right? And unfortunately, uh, people, this is where the deserving, undeserving uh, an analogy comes in, right? Meaning that the people that who uh, end up in, who are currently incarcerated and people would always differently associate to with, well, you know, they put themselves there, right? Uh, so they, there's, there's, a, there's always a sentiment of, you know, dehumanizing the people that who are currently incarcerated, right? So therefore, uh, people associate with that thinking of, well, they don't deserve, um, to have special treatment or do they deserve the same rights that we have as citizens out here in the free world? And unfortunately, uh, those uh, type of uh, diseases or viruses, a lot of times, um, it's, it's being bought in right, from the people that who worked in the prison system, right, from the free world. The population of people who are in buildings that, or in dormitories that who are confining there in a closed uh, space it's very challenging to be able to have uh, social distancing, you know, to avoid contact. Uh, and then you can't, of course, there's no testing, right? If we have difficult time testing out here in our community, in the free world, you know, imagine the difficulty of having testing inside the prison system uh, for th- those hundreds of thousands of uh, prisoners. I talked about the, the the small space and the confined spaces where people cannot do social distancing, right? So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is the healthcare system, right? As it is, the healthcare system in the prison industry complex is 
uh, uh, subpar, right? As as it is uh, for the system, let alone the people that who are being confined in their quarters, that who may have other illnesses and uh, mental health challenges, then they're they're not being uh, prioritized in that space, right? And then also having access to uh, uh, hygiene, right? Meaning that how do they take care, of, like sh- showering? You know, how do they make sure that they their their spaces are clean, right? And then also the, the food, right? Access to food, uh, all those um, are very pressing for many of the individuals that who are inside. You know, we talk about the mental health individual that prior to uh, the, the shelter in place, right? In the prison system, can you imagine the shelter in place in the prison system where they are stuck? As it is, you know, people are dealing with the, the stress and the trauma of dealing with being incarcerated. Then now, when they're in the cells, uh, being sheltered in place, that's like a, a lockdown. I was in uh, solitary confinement for eleven months in San Quentin State Prison, right? Um, so, and I hear other people also that who are formerly incarcerated in social media, or you know, just kind of compare uh, being locked, being uh, on a lockdown in prison, or being in solitary confinement in prison compared to some of the COVID nineteen related survival uh, uh, outlooks, right, or, or methods, and many of the individual. Uh, Actually, we, we're talking about how it's, there's no comparison, right? Because it's sheltering in place out here in society, even though you're in your own home or in your apartment or whatnot, at least you still have the freedom to move about, right? And to buy food, to, to purchase, uh, you know, different uh, necessities. Whereas in prison, uh, especially in solitary confinement, uh, you have a very, uh, uh, yes, no freedom, right, period, you know? And that you have no access to many of the necessity that we needed, uh, that we have access out here, right? So that's why um, a covert really hits hard for many of the people that who are um, in in the prisons and jails and detention centers, right? That who are people that who are forced to uh, stay in a place where they just kind of have to. Um, you pray that you don't you don't get infected. There's definitely a lot of like class issues that COVID-19 is just really, it's always been there, but COVID-19 is just really kind of bringing it up to the surface level because um, everyone is just experiencing this so differently in that, um, you know, for those in the prison system right now or detained, I mean, there there hasn't been a choice for them, right? And they just, now they're dealing with a pandemic that, you know, it's just, it's so dangerous for them to be living in those conditions too. Um, especially if they have such limited, if, if any access to hygiene or to even, you know, decent food and water. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one thing that, you know, people can have, uh, their opinions on, um, why, how, how they look at prisoners, right. Or people that will commit crimes, no matter what that, uh, opinion may be. I think um, you know people have to take responsibility uh, for their actions, but at the same time, uh, we also kind of honor the human rights right, of those individuals. I think even having this conversation just between the two of us has made me feel really humbled about 
just my own living situation. Um, it definitely helps me to realize just how lucky I am mm. to be in a situation, but it also helps me to be more empowered to give a voice to others that don't have access to even do a podcast or anything like this. So, um, I just really want to thank you again so much for being on the podcast. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for reaching out and let's stay connected. And then uh, hopefully there'll be an opportunity for us to, again, to collaborate and also to support each other in our work. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Eddie Zhang. For the latest thoughts on Asian American issues, follow me on Instagram at Chatting with Asians. Music was produced by Paulina Vo. You can follow her on Instagram at Vobot, spelled V O B O T, or on SoundCloud at Paulina Vo. Transcription and production assistance is by Marjo Stani. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>